Hi, and welcome to the February 2019 edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today I'm joined by Lewis Smith to discuss synovial sepsis post-intrasynovial injections, and Matthew Sprier to tell us about PET imaging of the thoroughbred fetlock. Lewis Smith is a surgeon at Rossdales and Partners in Newmarket, and is here to discuss the recent paper titled Synovial Sepsis is Rare Following Intrasynovial Medication in Equine Ambulatory Practice. Lewis, thank you very much for joining us for this EVJ podcast, the first of 2019. You've joined us to talk about your recent paper um, on synovial sepsis. It's titled Synovial Sepsis is Rare Following Intrasynovial Medication in Equine Ambulatory Practice. Can you please start by describing um, what defines synovial sepsis for us? Um, thank you. Thank you, Ren. It's a pleasure to be here for EVJ um, podcasts. Um, uh, it's a really interesting question, what exactly uh, defines synovial sepsis? Uh, normally, we uh, take synovial sepsis as um, once we've sampled uh, the synovial fluid um, from whatever cavity, um, you know, normally we're suspicious of uh, sepsis based on lameness and clinical presentation. And uh, when we've got a sample of synovial fluid, uh, we usually define synovial sepsis as a white cell count um, of, in the, of over 30,000 times 10 to the 9 per litre with more than 75% neutrophils and a total protein of over 35 um, grams per litre. Um, however, that's, uh, that definition is often stated, but you will find in critical um, subacute infections, the white cell concentration can fall to 10 to 20 times 10 to the litre. Um, so some clinicians uh, use a white cell count of 10,000 times 10 to the 9 for the threshold for infectious uh, synovitis. And uh, it is uh, interesting, though, because there is some overlap between infectious and inflammatory synovitis when you're just looking at the uh, white cell concentration or the total protein. Uh, but um, usually an increase in white cell count is what we um, define as, as synovial sepsis. Okay, so what does the current literature suggest um, influences the incidence of sepsis? Well, if we're talking about sepsis that occurs uh, post-joint medication, um, the incidence of sepsis uh, does appear to be influenced by how uh, the skin is prepared prior to injection, uh, whether um, sterile and single-use instruments are used, and interestingly, whether or not the veterinary surgeon prepares their own injection site, so whether they actually scrub it and prepare it themselves. Also, um, studies have shown that um, the level of experience of the veterinary surgeon and whether or not they remove the hair from the injection site is also uh, linked to um, the uh, influence, um, incidence of sepsis following medication. Um, some practitioners routinely use antimicrobials um, with all intra-articular medications. However, um, as probably we'll come on to a little bit, that can be a little bit later, that can be um, controversial. So what were the hypotheses of your study? Um, so we had two um, hypotheses in this study. Uh, one, that um, any joint prepar preparations comparing, containing <laughs> PS gags um, may have a higher frequency of synovial sepsis 
and uh, two, that medications that included prophylactic antimicrobials would likely have a lower level of um, post-medication complications, stroke, sepsis. Okay, so what were the inc- inclusion criteria for the, um, for the horses and what was the study population made up of? Okay, so um, the inclusion criteria was we just um, surveyed clinical records of all horses undergoing intracynovial medication in our ambulatory practice from the 1st of January 2006 um, to the 31st of December uh, 2011. Um, so, as I say, these were all horses that presented to the Rosters ambulatory practice at the time. Uh, they saw um, 10 different ambulatory clinicians. Um, so, that um, study population is made up of uh, every, every horse that presented to us. However, the vast majority of those um, were, were race horses. And how did, I know you covered a little bit in the introduction, but how did you define a case of synovial sepsis? Well, for the purposes of this study, um, we define synovial sepsis as the development of lameness, joint distension, and a synovial white cell count of over 10,000 cells per litre, and and synovial um, total protein of over uh, 25 grams per litre that occurred within eight weeks of a medication um, that failed to respond to conservative therapy. Um, So, Obviously, that inclusion criteria is fairly sort of open, um, and really we were keen to do that to make sure that we didn't miss any cases um, um, that may have occurred and, uh, you know, to try and um, be as thorough as possible. Um, And then um, we did occasionally get horses which were lame post-medication, but um, if those... um, post-medication complications resolved with conservative therapy, such as the administration of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, um, then uh, we sort of um, deemed that that was consistent um, with the case having responded to conservative therapy and the horse not having synovial sepsis. Um, so basically it was any horse um, within eight weeks of um, within eight weeks that had one of the four, um, sorry, two out of four things, um, so, um, lameness, joint distension, synovial white cell count over 10,000 uh, 10, times 10 to the 9, and a synovial total protein of 25 grams per litre. Okay. So you included a huge number of intraarticular injections in the study. How did you analyse all the data you collected? Um, so we just uh, collected it into a spreadsheet and um, then... Um, looked at um, the horse ID, uh, the clinician performing the medication, synovial structure, which is medicated, therapeutic agents, which we used. And then we used uh, descriptive analysis to um, assess the data. And uh, we used that to work out um, the attributable risk at horse level at um, the level of the joint medication session. Um, and then we me- measured the effect of which was attributable um, in the exposed compared to the um, original population. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And what was the general method used by clinicians to carry out the injections? Yeah. Um, so, in general, um, we didn't routinely clip the injection site. Uh, we um, 
prepared the injection site with a minimum of five minutes using a combination of chlorhexidine um, scrub and then um, followed by surgical spirit. Um, we then uh, used um, standard aseptic technique, including use of sterile gloves, new vials for medication. But um, if we do, were, did multiple joints um, in one session, they were all injected with the same set of sterile gloves, needles, syringes, medications. Um, and then dependent on clinician preference, um, usually um, an antimicrobial such as amicacin sulfate um, was, was included. Medications of, uh, which were below the carpus or tarsus, um, the medication site was bandaged uh, following the um, following the injection and the bandage was removed the following day but um, injections above the carpus um, and um, tarsus um, were not routinely bandaged. Okay so what was the overall incidence of synovial sepsis? What, what incidence did you find in this population? Yes um, so there were 4,331 medication sessions and in that we found four uh, incidence of cyanosis sepsis which, which occurred so the proportion was uh, 0.35% uh, so confidence intervals 0 to um, 0.46. Could you just explain what a medication session was? Yes so uh, um, each um, there were um, actual 9,456 intracynovial medications and um, they were performed in um, 4,331 sessions. Now each session is, as I say, um, when you use one pair of sterile gloves and then inject um, um, multiple joints. So um, the the actual, um, you could say that the if you injected two uh, joints at the same time, um, and there was sort of some contamination during that session, then it would have affected both joints or if you injected. I think the maximum was eight joints that were injected, but only a small amount of times. Um, however, if, if one joint, only one joint was injected at a time, then it was one medication session. Um, so it was each, each sort of time point uh, was, was, was a medication session. Each time um, the horse was, was medicated um, with uh, with um, um, we opened sterile gloves and and actually did a session of medications. Okay, and did you find that age, breed, gender, or discipline made any difference? Um, well, it was difficult to do meaningful comparisons um, um, because um, um, there was really quite a low incidence um, of sepsis. So um, we we tried to look at age. Um, um, the sex of the horse um, and um, what it was used for, and uh, we didn't find that they um, uh, made a difference. Um, but um, and a large proportion of these um, horses were um, a large one of these horses were thoroughbreds, which did make um, breed comparisons difficult. Do you think injection technique or medication used? Um, with the injection affected the likelihood of synovial sepsis? Um, yeah, so it didn't appear that injection um, technique influenced the frequency of synovial sepsis. Um, again, we only had uh, four complications. Um, so 
but there didn't seem to be a significantly high proportion from any one single veterinary surgeon. So um, if there were um, variations in injection technique, um, the um, medications used, we did find um, that there was a difference in the um, proportions of synovial sepsis that was um, developed. Um, two horses um, received PS gags and um, two horses um, received um, triamcinolone. And um, proportionally, we found um, that the PS gags um, did um, appear to be associated with a higher number of synovial sepsis. Um, we also thought that... Um, 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 that medications that included um, prophylactic antimicrobials um, might have lower level. But when we looked at the attributable risks of um, those that received amicase and sulfate, um, this was low and there was overlapping confidence intervals, which means that it doesn't seem to support the use of amicase and sulfate um, routinely. And um, the other thing is there was only a small positive effect from the amicase and sulfate. So proportionally, one would have to medicate a large number of individuals, maybe unnecessarily, in order to justify not having cyanovial sepsis in just one case because the incidence of um, cyanovial sepsis is so low. Were you surprised by the overall incidence being so low? Um, well, I, I thought it would be low, and that's why I set out to try and record a large number of horses uh, and survey, you know, a relatively busy practice over over six years. But um, uh, yes, uh, it was. Um, uh, we we started off doing it, and um, then uh, um, uh, when you're going through the data and when you're working in the place, you think, oh, well, that one had a septic joint, but actually you realize that they um, they might have developed it from uh, usually from some sort of traumatic incident or secondary cellulitis rather than uh, from intra-articular medication. So what's your take-home message to practitioners? Well, I think um, it's important for practitioners to realize that the frequency of sepsis following intracellular medication in, at least in this population of horses, is low. Um, and um, I would say that this report is comparable to the reports in human studies and other large population um, um, horse studies. Um, this is the first clinical studies corroborate the experimental findings that there's a higher risk of synovial sepsis when horses are given intra-articular um, polysulfated glycosaminoglycans. Um, and um, based on this study, I'm not sure that we can justify the routine use of prophylactic antimicrobials um, just based on this study. Um, but this paper may be useful for practitioners so they can inform their owners about the potential risks and complications following intracinovial medication. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us to, to talk about a really interesting paper. Thank you very much, Rhiannon. You're welcome. Matthew Spurrier is Associate Professor of Diagnostic Imaging at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. He joins us to discuss the paper titled ACNF Sodium Fluoride Positron Emission Tomography of the Racing Thoroughbred Fetlock Validation and Comparison with Other Imaging Modalities in Nine Horses. Hi Matthew, thank you very much for joining us to talk on the EVJ podcast this month. 
Could Thank you, you. Could you um, start by giving us uh, an explanation of what positron emission tomography is and how it works? Yeah, so positron emission tomography is a nuclear medicine imaging technique. So similar to scintigraphy, we inject a radio tracer uh, to the patient and then uh, we acquire images. The big difference with scintigraphy is that PET is a cross-sectional imaging technique. So instead of getting the two-dimensional image that we get from the gamma camera, PET will give us uh, some cross-sectional data. So an easy comparison to say is that PET is to scintigraphy uh, what CT is to radiography. Similar imaging technique, but getting three-dimensional data, cross-sectional data in comparison with planar imaging. And apart from the, the cross-sectional imaging, what other benefits does PET imaging offer compared to the other modalities? Yeah, so again, if we make the comparison uh, with scintigraphy, which is going to be the most direct comparison with uh, nuclear medicine technique, another advantage of PET is to have like a multiple uh, radio tracer. And so we can have some radio tracer for bone, uh, which is the one actually we use in this study, but potentially we can use other tracers that can give some information about the soft tissue. So that's where PET can open to some other uh, application. Uh, another comparison with scintigraphy is that PET also has a higher uh, spatial resolution. So not only from the cross-sectional better localization, but also better uh, spatial resolution so we can resolve uh, some uh, smaller lesion. So that's for the comparison with scintigraphy. And then if we compare um, with CT and MRI, I mean, the classic comparison with CT, CT is an excellent uh, structural imaging modality. In a way, we'll be looking at the size, shape, and density of structures when PET and all nuclear medicine technique in general are more like functional imaging technique. So PET is not going to give us information about size and shape of structures, but on what's happening at the molecular level, giving some functional information. And this is why very often um, you will couple PET and CT. So that way you combine excellent structural information with functional information that allow to decide whether a lesion is active or not, or to be able to resolve some lesion you would not see just by changes in size and shape. Uh, the comparison with MRI uh, so MRI is um, kind of a mixed technique. It's primarily a structural uh, image technique, but for bone, for example, with the, the stir hyperintensity, it tends to give a bit more of a functional information. So, so in that range, um, MRI is a combination of structural and functional. So I think the comparison between PET and MRI is something very interesting and something we need uh, to work uh, on more, and we'll, we will have some, some examples for this study. So what were the aims and objectives of, of this study? Yeah, so this was, uh, there were actually multiple objectives to this study, as this is uh, one of the, the very first uh, PET study we did. So prior to this study, we had uh, published a couple of exploratory study where we had just imaged uh, three uh, research horses. And so at the time when we started this study, it was when we just got funding to start our clinical PET program. Um, but what we needed to do was to validate a clinical protocol. Uh, on the previous uh, PET work we had done, 
what happened is that we had um, injected the horse under anesthesia, imaged with PET, and we had done a CT on a separate anesthesia episode, which was fine for initial data, initial validation, but obviously for clinical work, it really doesn't make sense to have to anesthetize a horse twice. Uh, and so the goal of this study was to see whether we could do both under the same uh, general anesthesia episode. And so the preliminary data we had were important from a radiation safety standpoint. And the radiation safety standpoint uh, allowed us to get clearance from the radiation safety authority to uh, inject the horse prior to induction, which uh, saved time under anesthesia, not having to wait for the distribution of the radio tracer. So this was the initial objective, uh, validate that clinical protocol. And in addition to that, um, one of the big focus we have in, in developing pets is the interest potentially for racehorses. And so that's why we decided that in this initial uh, population, we would focus on uh, the thoroughbred racehorse fetlock uh, due to the many injuries in the fetlock leading to catastrophic breakdown. So that was the second objective, to focus on the thoroughbred racehorse fetlock. So all the horses uh, we selected were thoroughbred uh, racehorses um, in training or recently uh, retired from racing. And we performed uh, the pets and compared with uh, other imaging modality, including uh, scintigraphy, uh, CT, and MRI. Okay. And how did you, I think you've been through the, the pet protocol with us. Um, did you have anything else to add to, to the protocol? Yeah, so a couple of things about the protocol. So I think uh, the radiation, the radiation dose is uh, is always a big, a big question, a big concern. And so what's interesting is that the dose we're using is uh, twenty uh, millicurie per horse, uh, which is seven forty megabecquerel if you want to use uh, international units. Uh, but so what's interesting, and that's from our preliminary study. Um, in people, uh, the dose uh, they use uh, with uh, sodium fluoride is uh, 5 millicurie per person. And so we've been able to, to reduce uh, that dose, because if you do per body weight, um, you know, 5, um, five millicurie in a person would equate more like 50 millicurie in a horse. And so we've, we've been able to show that with the scanner we're working with, we can use a, a lower dose. So I think that's something encouraging. So, yeah, the protocol is to use that kind of smaller dose of a radio tracer, inject ahead of time, um, anesthetize the horse. In terms of imaging technique, a PET works fairly fast. And so acquisition data for uh, one fetlock uh, was 10 to 12 minutes. Uh, which means that uh, in this study, again, we're focused on the fetlock. So on whole horses, we imaged uh, at least two fetlock. In a couple of them, we did all four fetlocks. But we were also acquiring data in other areas that are not reported in this study. But we imaged some carpi, some tarsi, uh, just to see what, what else uh, we could get. And we have some additional data there. And so for that reason, the time we spend in PET was about an hour to an hour and a half as we were imaging four to six different areas. And so after that, we transferred to CT, and the CT is fairly quick. So, I mean, the installation uh, CT table takes a bit of time, but the goal was that uh, within two hours, we would complete all uh, the imaging under anesthesia. 
which again was an important objective of that study to validate that on clinical patients, we could be efficient with getting both uh, PET and CT under one single anesthesia. You also undertook um, standing MRI examinations as well, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So all the horses also had uh, scintigraphy, so bone scintigraphy with uh, technetium MDP, and we performed uh, MRI on uh, some of them. So we have a total of 20 fetlocks uh, that had PET-CT. Out of the 20 fetlocks, we have uh, MRI on five of them. Uh, we, we selected the ones that had uh, abnormalities to go to standing MRI. Uh, so standing MRI was performed with a hallmark system uh, using a standard uh, clinical protocol for uh, fetlock imaging. Okay, so when comparing all the studies, um, what predominant pathologies were particularly highlighted by the PET um, examination? Yeah, so as, as we were expecting, uh, the, main, the main lesions uh, we saw in this fetlock of thoroughbred race horses were uh, in the palmar condyle and uh, in the proximal sesamoid bones. And um, what was really, really interesting, um, compared with scintigraphy, we, we ended up seeing, seeing more, uh, more lesions than what we saw on, on scintigraphy. And also being able to much better characterize the location of the lesion. And I think the, the proximal sesamoid bones are probably the best example for that. Um, you know, in scintigraphy, the way we were reading them, you know, at best, we'll be able to say there is increased uptake in the proximal sesamoid bone. When uh, with PET, we were able to uh, distinguish uh, several uh, locations for the uptake in the bone. Uh, in particular, uh, at the mid-body of the sesamoid bone, we had some horses with some focal uptake at uh, the dorsal and medial aspect when um, other horses had uptake more at the uh, lateral and abaxial aspect. We also had a couple of horses that would light up in the apex of the sesamoid, but again, we were really able um, to um, fairly precisely localize focal uptake uh, in these bones. Um, and a lot of these proximal sesamoid bone lesions were actually not um, not resolved on MRI. Uh, so the other area where we saw quite some changes was um, the palmar metacarpal condyle. And I think in the palmar metacarpal condyle we have we have a bit of a better a better correlation with uh, with MRI, uh, where on MRI we can see some stir hyperintensity. Um, in that in that location, um, but um, the proximal sesamoid bone, I think, were really the area where where we saw that the PET was at a clear a clear advantage uh, over MRI. I mean, I'll just make one one comment here, and uh, I, I I love the podcast, and I'm really happy to be able to share this research like that. But I think I have to make a comment that this is a very visual paper, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of figures. And I will really encourage people listening to this podcast to to look at the images at some point. No need to read the paper, just look at the images if you've listened to this. <laughs> Absolutely. There's some yeah, beautiful images in the paper. So when comparing the histopathology, um, what did you find at a cellular level at these sites of marked increased uptake? 
Yeah, so that was an, another goal that I, I did not mention initially. But so we had the opportunity on one of the research horses to do, um, so the horse ended up being euthanized. And so we did uh, gross post-mortem. We have micro CT on it and also did some um, histology. Um, so I think I'll start with the gross pathology because I think that was something that was like really, really interesting to me. Uh, so the uptake uh, we saw on, on this guy, and he was a, a fetlock with lesion both in the palmar condyle and the proximal sesamoid bone. And so what's really interesting is that the uptake was like quite strong uh, in the palmar condyle. And so I think we, we all know about this palmar condyle disease, and we know that uh, we can see it uh, on CT, and we can see some some pretty big defect down there. But I think what was really interesting in this case is that on the CT, you do not see um, any defect there. And when we do the gross post-mortem, actually what you see on section is more of a bruising of the subchondral bone, but there is no uh, surface uh, defect. And I think that's something like really, really interesting to be able to see the lesion so clearly on imaging prior to having any structural damage. And so that goes back to what I was explaining in the introduction, like the advantage of functional imaging. And I think if we um, translate that in the clinics, I mean, I think this is great news because it means that if we're able to identify your pathologic process before uh, there is structural damage, we're definitely at an advantage to help uh, the patient. So yeah, so bruising uh, was uh, the main thing we saw uh, at the gross level. And then on the micro CT, uh, what we can see is uh, multiple uh, small vascular channels um, in this area, uh, which is confirmed on the, um, on the histology like multiple small uh, vascular channels in the area. And so we did some, um, some, special, uh, some special staining too to be able to look at the osteoblastic activity. And so what we confirmed was that not only there was increased um, uh, blood supply to the area, but also increased osteoblastic activity. And so if we look at the way the, the tracer functions, so that sodium fluoride tracer we're using, so the sodium fluoride is being incorporated into the hydroxyapatite matrix of bone in areas where the matrix is being remodeled. And so it was quite nice to be able to um, confirm that and so show that uh, the pathologic level uh, on, on the dial um, and also on the um, on the proximal uh, sesamoid bone, so the bones we got to do pathology on at both uh, that uh, dorsal mid-body lesion and the apical lesion, and uh, same thing, we could confirm increased vascularity on the micro CT, bruising on the gross pathology, and the histopath uh, showing this um, increased blood supply and uh, focal. Uh, osteoblastic activity and um, demonstrating bone remodeling in the in the area. So, in in future, uh, where do you envisage PET imaging being most useful, um, and do you see it being used alongside other mod modalities or instead of other modalities? Yeah, so I think there's a lot. Uh, there's still a lot of questions to answer, but I think we're we're, we're very excited about uh, the results of this initial study and. You know, concluding first on, on this study and, you know, the target we had here was um, the racehorse fetlock. And, and I think this is 
you know, this is a hurry of, of high importance in in the horse racing industry with all, all the catastrophic breakdown. And so I think this is this is one of the challenge in the in the industry is to be able to um, recognize a lesion before a catastrophic breakdown happens. And um, you know the limitation of these studies obviously is a small number of horses, and having some of the horses being actually research horses training for pharmacology studies. So this is maybe not the same training as on the racetrack. So there's definitely a need. Uh, to get to a larger scale study uh, with looking at horses um, in training on the racetrack at a high uh, intensity level. Um, but um, I think this is very exciting that we have here a new tool uh, to assess the changes in the fetlock and to hopefully uh, prevent uh, this catastrophic uh, breakdown on the racetrack. Um, so the challenge is there. Um, on the racetrack, obviously, the limitations with uh, general anesthesia uh, that we had um, in the current study. Um, but this is something that uh, we are currently uh, working on. And so we, we hope to be able uh, soon to perform uh, PET scan on standing horses, at least for the fetlock. I think this is going to be an important development, if we want to see this tool um, in broad use on the racetrack, we need to find a way to not have to go into general anesthesia. Um, but from the imaging principles uh, behind PETs, I think there's, there's good good reason to, to believe that um, being able to do a standing PET is, is, is in the near future and that's something that will very likely happen. So that's um, that's for the for the racehorse population, um, and then I think uh, there are some many other indications. And although this study there was focused on the racehorse, we have other like um, clinical experience now. And um, if we go back to the comparison with with MRI, because I think MRI is is probably the number one advanced imaging modality used uh, for lameness. And so how does PET compare with that? Um, so I think it's, it's, it's going to be the topic of, of many other uh, research publication, but just as a, a little, um, little introduction to that, um, the bone changes are, are really, uh, really striking on PET. And I think there are some MRI study where we're questioning, oh, there's maybe a little bit of stir hyperintensity here. We're, we're suspecting bone remodeling. PET makes it pretty clear, um, the, contrast uh, in the image is, is really strong. And so I think this is an excellent uh, imaging modality for the bone, especially areas of like compact bone, subchondral bone. Uh, the really dense bone is difficult to image with MRI because it gives very little signal. And you only see changes there once you start having quite some advanced changes. PET is going to be more sensitive uh, for, for bone changes there. And another advantage of PET over MRI is um, the speed of acquisition. And again, I'm just like stretching a little bit away from the current study or working on the fetlock. But if we talk about um, imaging in sport horses, where we might have some horses where the localization of the lameness is not that clear or where we suspect having potentially some changes in the foot, in the fetlock, and maybe the suspensory origin, working with like 10-minute acquisition per region means that in half an hour, we're able to image the horse like from the toe 
to the suspensory origin, which is not something that we can do with MRI. So in our current clinical practice, that's that's a reason where I, I like PET over MRI is to be able to cover uh, some larger area under general anesthesia. And another area of research that we're currently working on with PET right now is to just like uh, use also the soft tissue tracer. And so that's, um, again, something really interesting in comparison with MRI. Uh, speaking of tendon lesions, uh, tendon lesions on MRI can be challenging to decide what is the activity in the lesion. Is this something chronic or is this something active that's currently responsible for the lameness? And the soft tissue tracer that we're using, the fluorodeoxyglucose, which is a radioactive glucose, so a good marker of inflammation and metabolic activities, is very good at that. And so again, uh, back to the introduction, I think the real strength of PET is bringing the functional information. And so that's why I think it's it's also, um, you know, we definitely need to use it in combination with an other modality to get the structural information, and CT is the number one modality used in combination with PET because it's easy, because it's quick. Um, but I think with MRI, it can combine very well too. When we have these MRI studies with like many uh, different findings, uh, having some PET information in addition to that will help decide which one are the more active lesions uh, versus what is chronic, what is more scar tissue. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us to discuss this fascinating research. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you for this opportunity. I really enjoy sharing this with you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening, and please join us again for the April edition.